Good morning. My name is Gretchen Wilson, and I'll be reading Acts 2, 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And this is the word of the Lord. I encountered an article this week about the topic of loneliness. There's a lot of them out there. This one in particular had more quotes than I'm sure any of you are interested in hearing. But let me just give you an overview. The biggest threat facing middle-aged men isn't smoking or obesity. It's loneliness. That according to the Boston Globe. Dr. Murthy, a former Surgeon General of the United States, was the first person to call loneliness an epidemic in our society. He says it's an insidious type of stress that leads to chronic inflammation, an increased risk of heart disease, arthritis, and diabetes. Loneliness has the same effect on mortality as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. I, I didn't make that one up. I don't know where the data is to support it, but I would suggest the Surgeon General knows a little bit more about it than I do, that loneliness is a huge problem. In uh, reading this week about that topic, I read someone who put it this way. Now, for, for some of you, you might not connect to this, but for a lot of you will. And the phrase was, we scroll alone. Does that make sense? We scroll alone. We sit at home. And in our quiet time, we scroll through Facebook, through Twitter, through Instagram, whatever. I can't even keep up with the various social media venues. And we look at pictures of people who always put the first and best image forward. Smiling perfection. And as we scroll alone we become even more and more lonely because surely our lives aren't as good as that or so it doesn't seem they are. Mother Teresa may have been right when she said a life without other people is the worst disease any human being can ever experience. 
She knew something about serving human beings who had tremendous diseases. When you think about the New Testament, um, for those of you who think like I do, you, you, you think about a lot of problems, right? If you take a look at the epistle of Paul, all the epistles of Paul for the most part, they're about issues or struggles or problems in the church. That's where we get a lot of our profound theology, people's problems. But it doesn't seem to me, would, would you share this observation? It doesn't seem to me that a big problem in the early church was loneliness. Now, there may have been some loneliness, but it certainly wasn't a big topic that was addressed as a societal issue or an issue in the church. Why do you suppose that was true, if I'm correct? Well, I think the reason it was true was because of what we just read. Can I read it again? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, and everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. There's nothing about aloneness in that description of an early Christian community. It's just a description of community. Maybe it's our window into a healthy Christian life or a healthy Christian community. One window into a healthy Christian life or a healthy Christian community might just be the use of single words to identify what the church is about. Words like these, body, field, bride, followers, disciples, people of the way. It also strikes me that Jesus seemed never to do anything alone. Oh, of course, he had to have done some things alone. But if you look at the New Testament, the description of Jesus was ministry in community all the time with people who were really irritating, by the way. There were 12 of them. And he stayed with them all the time. So what about life in community and building community at any given location? The thing about it is that every location has its unique challenges, right? And, and ours does as well. But I want to try to consider this passage in Acts chapter 2 and make application to our lives. First to consider Acts chapter 2 and what was going on there. The first thing we notice about this community is that it was a learning community. It says it right up front at the very beginning of the description. They were gathered together and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. Now let's remember what the apostles' teachings were. They were not the New Testament. They didn't have it yet. The apostles' teachings were about Jesus and what we call in the Christian tradition the Old Testament or what many people call the Hebrew Scriptures. 
It was about the apostles looking at the Hebrew Scriptures and seeing Jesus in them. And they studied the apostles' teachings concerning that and concerning life together, and concerning morality, and concerning the sovereignty of God, and concerning the list, you know, could go on and on and on. They were together studying the teachings of the apostles. Now, it could be that studying the teachings of the apostles might look like sitting at the apostles' feet and just kind of taking in all the information that they gave. I can't begin to claim that I know what it looked like when they studied the teachings of the apostles. But I can be sure of one thing. From what I understand of Jewish community, which it was, in a religious context, which it was, there was constant dialogue and even debate. One of my Jewish friends, a rabbi, said to me, when you have two Jewish brothers together, there's always at least three opinions. Do you love that one? We're... He said, we're opinionated people in community. We're arguing about stuff all the time. And sometimes people think we're angry at one another. But that's the way we learn. I suspect that that's the way it was in the first century church. That things were put out there and they were debated and they were discussed. And the apostles were the leaders. But there was dialogue going on. Constant dialogue. It seems like to me a learning community is that. I've known many places where a learning community was not that. It was ex-cathedra statements from the pulpit and everybody walking in lockstep with a particular way of thinking. Whatever our problems, that's not one of them here, okay? Not one of them. We've got other problems, but that's not it. My point is, we have the same thing, I believe, as an early Christian community. A devotion to Jesus Christ and dialogue about what it means to follow. So in community, we ought to study the Scriptures with great energy and significant opinion. And we ought to think about it and debate it together and then live it in unity. That's possible, you know. It is. And I think this is a, a good place for it. Second thing I notice about this early community is that they were a sharing community. Now, you might look at it and say it was some sort of communalism. Most scholars now suggest that it wasn't as communal as one might think. In other words, they didn't all live together in the same place. As a matter of fact, we know from early records and archaeology, there were certain families in the early Christian community that were very wealthy and others that were not. And these families in these early Christian communities that were wealthy, they had grand homes. And those grand homes became places of worship. 
So there was actually economic disparity between the members of the congregation. The economic disparity was not solved by everybody giving all their money at one time to the apostles and the apostles distributing in an equitable manner. That doesn't seem to be true. Notice what does seem to be true about the text. When there was a need, it was supplied. In other words, what you did with what you had was serve others and the Christian community. You had your eyes wide open looking for needs, and as soon as they arose, the need was met. There have been a number of times where people have um, chided me for not talking enough about money and tithing. Maybe they're correct. I don't talk about it that much. But you know what communal sharing looks like? Among other things, it means giving to the body of Christ. This is going to seem like uh, a promo for good deeds or good works. You know... You know it, but let's, let's say it out loud. We don't charge for anything around here. You have any idea how much time we spend giving of ourselves for nothing? That's the nature of the church. And in order for the church to do that, the church has to have the resources to do it. And you're a part of a sharing community right here that can make that happen. When you hear of a need, when you see a need, when you look at the church, you say, out of the blessings of the wealth that were given to me by God, I'm going to pour out those blessings into others. It was more of an attitude than a program in the early church. If somebody had a need, it was met. The second thing I mentioned was sharing in community. The third thing I want to mention was that it was a worshiping community. Why a worshiping community? Or maybe I should put it this way. Why, why worship? Well, the first reason we worship is God's worthy of worship. You cannot read through the Psalms without hearing that on every other page. God is worthy of our worship. God is worthy of our praise. Our songs throughout these worship services are all about the worthiness of God and our praise to God. It's part of the fabric of worship. It is there because God deserves it. It's also there because God is awesome. As a matter of fact, if you were uh, to have a conversation with an ancient religious person, not Jewish or Christian or anything, but just an ancient religious person, let's, let's go back before the time of Christ. Um, and you ask them, well, why do you worship God? Their answer might be something like, 
well, God is awesome. God is powerful. God is fierce. God is mysterious. God is. So I must worship God. That would be a common theme among all religions in the ancient world. As a matter of fact, ancient religious people worship constellations for the same reason. They looked at the constellations and they said, I can't control that. There's something going on out there and it must be connected to my life. I'm just going to bow down and worship to it. It's, It's not true of our particular culture, is it? That we naturally just worship. Maybe it's because we have an elevated sense of our own importance that we're not as inclined to bow face down before God or the planets, for that matter. We think we've got it figured out. We have a false sense of control. But ancient people thought God or the gods were worthy of worship because they were beyond us. However, as true as that is concerning Almighty God, there is something else about worship that is true of the Jewish tradition and especially the Christian tradition. And it is that we worship that God who is almighty and mysterious and fierce because that same God is our good shepherd. To use the words of the psalmist David or to use the words of Jesus He's our Father. So bring your requests to your Father. Worship the one who is so grand and so mighty that he does not need you at all. And at the same time, is so intimate that he cares for you like a parent. That's why God is worthy of worship. That's why the early church was a worshiping community. They were a worshiping community because it just was the right thing to do, but they were also a worshiping community because they understood that worship was a pathway to God. You can't just figure God out. Worship is a form of communication with a personal God, and that communication is essential to our knowledge. You wouldn't, would you, claim to know someone without communicating with them? Of course not. That's how we know one another. So communication with God through worship is a form of knowledge. And did you notice that everywhere prayer is present? I'm not putting it apart from all the other things listed in the chapter. I'm just suggesting that prayer, communion with God, was present throughout the whole thing. They went to the temple together and prayed at the time of prayer. They prayed in their homes. They prayed privately. Prayer and communication with God as a form of worship was integral to their life because it was a pathway to the knowledge of God. There's a third thing that was true of worship and why worshiping communities are important. It's because worship 
is essential for life. It's just essential for life. When we gather in worship, it realigns us with the purposes of God. Why? Because Monday through Friday, if we're not careful, we're aligned with our purposes and the purposes of our world. But in this place, there's a realignment that happens where we ask questions concerning everything that happened the six days before this one, realigning those purposes with the purpose of God. Something else about corporate worship is it guards us from self-centeredness. When I enter into corporate worship, I, I have a hard time believing it's all about me. <laughs> Don't you? I mean, it's obviously all about God, but it's about those who are around me as well. When we enter into worship, it places us among God's people and we become a part of their story and they become a part of ours. When we enter into worship, we're actually inviting God to take up residence among us. You can, you can do that on your own. But it's not quite the same as corporate worship. The image of the tabernacle comes to mind. The image of the tabernacle was where God was present with His people. And the word tabernacle itself, as most of you know, means to be among. It means the presence of God among His people. Worship does that for us. Here's what we do, though, with worship. We frequently approach worship as a way to recoup when we're at the end of our rope. We go for long stretches of time, and then we say, man, i got to get back to church. i got to get back to worship because things aren't going so well. That's really not the proper approach to worship. The proper approach to worship is to say, it's food and water for my life. A person that I know well, who has a very busy life, not speaking of corporate worship, but later speaking of corporate worship, said to me, I can't function. I can't function unless I start my day in prayer and study of God's Word. I can't function. Does that mean this person couldn't get out of bed and go to work? No. The person was understanding the fact that worship of God was the way they understood reality, and it reoriented their whole world. And when they walked into the busyness of their day, they recognized how important those minutes before the day began were to their very soul, because it's worship. If there's two parts of worship I'd like to emphasize for you, if there's two things I wish you would walk out of this place saying to yourself, it's this. I will not, will not 
begin my day without some form of private worship. Notice there was nothing prescriptive about how you do it. I wish you would make that commitment. And then the second commitment I wish you would make is that if I am in this town, I will be in worship on Sunday with God's people. I will make it that much of a priority. Why? Because I understand I literally cannot function as a Christian without it. It is my food and my water. Now with the one minute and 20 seconds I have left, I want to make several points of application. <laughs> 10 seconds each. ECC, as I acknowledged at the end of my sermon last week, is not an easy place to find community. We all know that, right? Because it's a coming and going place. It's a receiving, equipping, and sending place. So how do we do it? Could be so many things. But first we do it by taking the opportunities that are available to us. You got to take the opportunities that are available. You may have noticed in your bulletin uh, today there's a, an insert related to small groups and an opportunity for you to be involved. Did you know that there are some roughly 250 people in this congregation who are connected to a small group? Actually, that's a very high number for a church. But I bet you a lot of you didn't know that. And you know whose fault that is? Ours. So you know what's going to happen going forward? You're going to get so tired about hearing community, you're going to uh, want to run the other way. We're going to keep it in front of you over and over and over and over again. So take the opportunities that are available for community. I would also say this, um, of course, adult community groups are also um, an opportunity. But let me make a somewhat controversial statement, I suppose. Um, whenever you're looking for a small group, I want to suggest that compatibility is a good thing, but I also want to suggest it's overrated. Matter of fact, I even... Uh, I even emphasize this in premarital counseling. Sometimes we want everything to be just right. We want everybody to think the way we do, or we want to be connected with that person at a deep level right away. We just, he's just so much different than me. She's just like off over here. I'm not that. I want to be in a comfort zone. I get it. But compatibility is overrated. I'm not suggesting you ignore it, but I am suggesting that you ask whether or not you ought to focus instead on the difference among the people who are there and the beauty they can bring. I have another good friend uh, in this congregation who um, 
told me at one point how important community was to him. And he said, there are two things that I decided that I would do. Uh, and then he kind of winked and said, because you kicked my butt about it, because we're good friends. Um, so I decided that I would make a commitment to be here on Sunday morning, no matter what. And I made a commitment that I was going to be a part of community. And then he said, um, one of the communities that I'm a part of really bothered me a lot at the beginning. I didn't understand where a bunch of the people were coming from. Um, they were way different than me. They, they even believed different than I did. I just, I wanted to run so many times. But I said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to stay with it. And he said, I can't tell you how much that shaped my life. How much I look into the face of that other person that's so different from me and learn so much from them. So take the opportunities for community. Make a commitment. Make it a priority. And you will be changed. Growth happens in the messiness a lot of times. Here's another bit of advice. When you're very, very, very busy, it's even more, more, more important. The busier you are, the more important community is. Or to put it another way, if you're overwhelmed with busyness, for God's sake, just stop. Just stop long enough to be in community. It will do something to heal your soul. Another thing I want to say about community in this place is you might say to yourself, I'm not going to be here that long. That's why it's even more important. Jump in now. Do it now. Get involved. I'll never forget a woman coming to me before they left the church to move on to another town. And she said to me, I want to apologize for not seeing the beauty that was here at the beginning. I didn't get involved. And finally when I did, it breaks my heart to leave. You got to get involved. Maybe your heart will break at the end, but it'll be good for you. So, can we walk away this morning and make one singular commitment? Don't know what that commitment is. You decide. One singular commitment to engaging in community. That'd be my request. Can you do that? Figure out what it is. And make the commitment and stick to it. I have one other thing to say about community. Um, next week at this time, there's going to be a whole lot of people here you don't know. The service and the next service and people coming and going. Can we make a commitment together every week 
just to find somebody we don't know and say hello? Don't be embarrassed that you don't know them. If, if I hadn't gotten over that years ago, I wouldn't have been friendly to anybody. Just say, I'm not sure we've ever met. And if we have, I'm sorry. I don't remember, but I'd like to know who you are. Can you tell me who you are? Just find somebody you don't know and greet them. You have no idea for the next three weeks how important that will be to somebody that you don't know. Right? Just stop and do it. It doesn't take long, but it does take a commitment on your part to make sure it happens when you come to church. I'm trying to be very aware of my time, and I'm six minutes and 39 seconds over. Let's pray. Okay. Thank you, Lord, for community, uh, the community that you shaped uh, through the apostles and established in your church. Thank you for the community that is shaped in this place. We even thank you for the challenges of community in this place. If it wasn't a challenge, it probably wouldn't be as important. We pray you'll help us to invest in others' lives, uh, understand that we cannot be alone and be healthy, and uh, give us open hands and open hearts to serve those around us. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.